Hey everybody, and welcome to Crime and Spirits Podcast, your one-stop shop for spooky stories, handcrafted cocktails, and all things true crime. I'm your host, Bree. And I am your other host, Suze. I'm also the resident bartender here at Crime and Spirits. Because not only do we bring you a new case or topic of interest every week, but we also teach you a little something about mixology along the way. Woohoo, because I mix up a drink that ties in in some way with our theme for the week, and then walk you through how to make one for yourself so you can sip right along with us. We've been friends for years, and one of our favorite things to do is mix up something delicious and throw on a true crime documentary, which is basically what this podcast has become. It is, however, better research than that, we promise, cross our hearts. (laughs) We also have a script written out that we mostly follow. Mostly. Still, you can expect some tangents here and there. We also managed to find a way to mention Criminal Minds at least once, if not multiple times per episode. Gotta give Dr. Spencer Reed all the love. Yes, girl. And you also can't forget the cursing, because we definitely curse on this show. We try to keep things a little bit more conversational. Think less like Dateline and more like Girls' Night. Just replace the catty gossip with actual facts. And maybe just a little catty gossip. So come hang out with us, learn a little something with us every Sunday, and make sure to join us on Instagram or Facebook at Crime and Spirits Pod. That is the word and. We'd love to chat with you about, I mean, whatever, really, but mostly true crime. So buckle up, buttercups. Sip tight. And let's get on with the show. Oh, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Crime and Spirits Podcast. We are your hosts. My name is Bree. And I'm Suze. Hope everybody's having a great day so far. Before we get into things, we just want to take a moment to say, you guys, we're really, really sorry. We have a weird release date for this episode I this know. week. We're stacking them up, though, Wednesday and Sunday. Yeah, watch hey. out. So we just had some technical difficulties. And we have been striving to make our sound ourselves sound better and put out a better quality product for you. And we would never want to release something that we would not want to listen to ourselves. Yeah. Therefore, we thought it was in everybody's best interest <laughs> to just re-record, hold it back a few days, and put out something that's actually good. Yes. Because that's all we want in this world is good things. Yes. Even if it's about <laughs> awful things. <laughs> Absolutely. We're striving to improve ourselves, not go backwards. Right. So, again, super, super sorry, but hopefully you guys aren't too terribly upset with us. But you can join <laughs> us Wednesday and Sunday. Hey. So, and if one. you usually <laughs> listen at the end of the week, then you didn't miss anything. So just ignore all of this. Right. <laughs> Plus, sometimes, I'm not going to lie, when there's a new show that comes on television or, like, a new season of something, mm-hmm. I'll wait because I like to watch, like, yeah, five of them at binge. a time. So... Perhaps you can binge these yeah, two this maybe. week. maybe. Look at us. <laughs> there you go. Pick it outside the box. Silver lining. <laughs> so, this week we are going to be talking about a serial killer named Rodney Alcala. Bad guy. This man was convicted of committing five murders over the course of two years in the late 70s. There are two things that make this case notable. One is the fact that Rodney had been convicted several different times, but managed to get released several different times. It really grinds my gears, y'all. It's <laughs> absolutely mind-boggling that a man like this was able to charm his way right out of jail. The second reason, this guy went on a television game show amid his murdering people spree. This is a gross case. He did lots of icky things that are going to be unpleasant to talk about, but it's also an interesting one. It is. It's very, it's intriguing, we'll say. That's a good word for it. Right. <laughs> With that being said, here's our warning for you guys. Like every week, Rodney Alcala was a bad man who hurt children and women in the worst kinds of ways. This case does involve the discussion of murder and physical abuse, but also sexual assault and molestation. Like we said, this one is a toughie. We totally understand if you would like to sit it out, just catch up with us next time. Of course, we never, ever, ever mean any disrespect to any of the victims or to the families of any of those involved in the cases we're discussing. Never, ever. Our intention here has more of an educational vibe to it. We love to learn new things, and the psychopathy and legal side of all of this just fascinates us to no end. Mm -hmm. Also, we love making up and trying new and delicious drinks. This podcast is just the culmination of two of our favorite pastimes rolled into one. It's my most favorite things to do. Right? So if you like what you are about to hear, please make sure to follow the podcast on social media. 
And if you'd like to follow us individually, make sure you stick around at the end and we'll let you know where you can find us. Now, on to the drinks. I hope you made something strong because, oh boy, are we going to need it. Drink. So (laughs) for this portion, the drink portion, we're going to be focusing on Rodney's appearance on a dating game show. It was a TV show with The Bachelorette and Bachelors. She would ask questions. She would then choose a guy based on his responses. The show itself, when you watch clips, is like nothing but like 70s cheese. Oh, it's so cheesy. Like it is cheese with cheese. Like the questions were cheesy. The decor was like big, groovy, like neon colored flowers and stuff. It's the perfect depiction, I think, too, of like what media was like Uh at that time. Absolutely. So it's a super interesting time capsule to look back on. It's uh, because I watched some clips when I was doing my research and I was like, what the hell are we going to be drinking this week? And I was (laughs) like, you know what? In my brain, I went, Bachelors, swinging 70s. (laughs) We're going classic cocktail. So we're making a classic Manhattan this Mm. week. I don't know. My brain is like, I love sometimes. to see <laughs> the trajectory your brain takes you on. So a Manhattan is a classic cocktail. Every bar that I've ever been at makes one, has a signature one. Some of them okay. smoke them. Some of them put a weird twist on them. Oh. Whatever blows your hair back. Smoked <laughs> whiskeys are a thing now. So Fancy. Yes. <clears throat> Traditionally, rye whiskey is used in a Manhattan. During Prohibition, they used Canadian whiskey because it was easy to get. It was right across the lake mm. for most of us. Yeah, that makes sense. And Canada didn't have the amendment that we had, so it was sort of like, you might get in trouble for bringing it over here, but, like, you could, you still had it, It you was know? <laughs> relatively easy to do. Um, you can also use bourbon or blended whiskey if that's what you prefer. People make Manhattans all different kinds of ways. Interesting. A Manhattan, you can do um, up, which is chilled and strained, or on the rocks. We are doing ours on the rocks. I like mine with cherries. I just found Luxardo cherries are the best cherries <laughs> in the universe. So that's what we're using. But a lot of people also like a lemon twist. Okay. Uh, it does nothing. It's whatever for me. you feel yeah, like. Whatever blows your hair back, basically. <laughs> so allegedly, this drink originated at the Manhattan Club in New York City in the mid 1870s. It was served at a banquet, and when people learned of the drink, they supposedly began asking for the quote unquote Manhattan cocktail because it was oh. served at the Manhattan Club. Okay. Okay, great. <laughs> but the lady throwing the banquet, who just happened to be Winston Churchill's mother, um, was actually in France and pregnant at the time, so I'm guessing oh. this story is just made up. <laughs> just a fanciful, fun way to make up a name called Manhattan. Oh. Which, in my research, I did find out there are cocktails named for the five boroughs. Oh, okay. So every part of New York City has its own signature cocktail. Some of them sounded kind of weird. So I just focused on the Manhattan (laughs) rather than going down that crazy rabbit hole. Save that for another time. Right. Um, The Manhattan also appeared in cocktail books written as early as 1884. So I always think of this as like an old guy drink. (laughs) <laughs> that's like, fair from I my experience old guy old lady when i first yeah. started bartending i started bartending at applebee's go ahead knock it it's whatever <laughs> i learned a lot there yeah. a lot a lot a lot i had this little old lady when you could still smoke at bar tops oh my god yes girl her <laughs> and her friend would come in the friend wanted tangray and tonic with a lime Okay. As they're both smoking their cigarettes. <laughs> this lady would always get a Manhattan. She's like, I like it with whatever. She just did regular Jack Daniels, so not a rye whiskey, but it's Jack, sweet vermouth, and a little bit of bitters. And I was like, bitters, huh? Because bitters is a weird thing. Yeah. But she said, I made them great. She loved them. So whatever. So I've always put bitters in my Manhattans. Turns out it's supposed to be in there. Oh, who knew? Interesting. Not me. as Just like a 21-year-old of... bartender. Nope. That's part of the original recipe is okay. Angostura bitters. So for our version today, we're using Jack Daniels rye whiskey. They say rye is best because of its spicy, edgy profile. Oh. To me, rye is not spicy or edgy, but it does go <laughs> well in the cocktail. Like okay. it mixes well with the bitters and the sweet vermouth. Okay. I think it's very good. Um... We're also using Martini and Rossi Sweet Vermouth. It's an Italian liqueur. It comes in, and you've seen them at every single bar. The green bottle, it's a little curvy. It's very tall. I bought the small version, but they make dry (laughs) and sweet vermouth. Okay. We're using the sweet, so the red label. If that'll help you. Red red is, I, I 
have a weird way to remember it. Red okay. is a sweet color, like candy or an apple, so it's oh. sweet. So sweet in your Manhattans. Oh, that's cute. My brain, You're like adorable. I said, it's weird. <laughs> I love it. Um, so we're doing the sweet vermouth, the Jack Daniels rye, and then Angostura bitters. Every single bar I've worked at has also had a bottle of this. The exact formula is a closely guarded secret with only one person knowing the whole entire recipe, and it is passed hereditarily. That's wild. Isn't it? I was talking to my friend Ling about it, and she was mm-hmm. like, oh, everybody knows parts of the recipe, but only one person knows all of it. That's how you do it. And she actually told me when she went on her honeymoon in Wisconsin, they did a bitters boot camp. Oh. So you can make your own bitters. You just can't call it Angostura bitters. Oh. Because it doesn't follow the secret recipe. That's so interesting. Because it's aromatics in, in vodka, I feel, basically. Oh. And you just let it sit in a dark place for a while, <laughs> shake it a few times, and then strain out the aromatics. It's a very interesting it's weird it's very weird huh and you would think ew why would you put that in anything (laughs) but it goes in old fashions it goes in manhattans and i've also heard if you put bitters with ginger ale it will help settle an upset stomach be it like heartburn or nausea i feel like lynn has told me that before yeah we do (laughs) it at work a lot i think that's most of the way that we get rid of our angostura bitters (laughs) is because somebody has an upset tummy so we just make them ginger ale and Huh. It's weird. So, so interesting. Supposedly, it's like a cure-all for everything. So first things first, to mix up your Manhattan. If you want it up, chill your martini glass. If you want it on the rocks, just put fresh rocks in the glass. Um, add ice to your shaker. I like to put the booze in the shaker, stir it, and then strain it over fresh ice when I have it on the rocks. Because rather than just layer it up, at least it's sort of mixed up like a little bit. Like layering in the glass, you mean, yes, versus the shaker? because a lot of people, when they make Manhattans on the rocks, will just layer it up. Pour so it if you the do drink, the sweet yeah. vermouth first, the sweet vermouth all sits at the bottom. And you know what I mean? Mm, they yeah. have to stir it with their straws. It's just... This I, is just I feel a difference. Yeah. It's classier this way, because now it's already all mixed <laughs> up for fancy. them. So you add two ounces of the rye, or your bourbon or whiskey of choice, one ounce of the sweet vermouth, and two dashes of the bitters to your shaker... You can either shake it or stir it. Go James Bond if you want. Make it super <laughs> icy. It doesn't matter to me. We just got, gave ours a little stir and a little shake and then poured it right over fresh ice. If you're doing it up, you just strain it right into your chilled glass. Um, again, if you want to garnish your drink, I recommend the Luxardos. Mm-hmm. I know they're expensive, but they're really fucking good, especially when they marinate in the booze for a little while. It's been like your shit lately. Yes. She's really into the cheers. Maraschinos are good, too, but yeah. now that I know that Luxardos exist, I'm like, this, these you are just garbage. can't be bothered. <laughs> but if you want a lemon twist to, like, freshen it up, you can do that, too. Interesting. There's a million different ways you can make it. I did find out in my research, this is just a fun little... <laughs> There's a lot of variations to a Manhattan. So a perfect Manhattan is if you split sweet and dry vermouth equally. So equal parts, like a half an ounce of each. Okay. With your whiskey. Um, If you switch the ratios to make the vermouth the main ingredient, you have stirred up a reverse Manhattan. So two ounces of vermouth, one ounce of whiskey. Okay. Right? And if you actually want to have a Scotch Manhattan, it's called a Rob Roy. I feel like somebody ordered a Rob Roy from me once, and I had no idea what they were talking about. That happened to me once. A man, a lady, excuse me, it was not a man. It was a lady shorter to hairy navel, and I was like, (laughs) what the fuck is that? Do you mean like a fuzzy navel with peach schnapps and orange juice? And she's like, no, I want it hairy. That's vodka, peach schnapps and orange juice. And I was like, I didn't know that was a thing. You learn something new every day. So interesting. I've heard of a Rob Roy before. I've never heard of a reverse Manhattan I've made a couple perfect Manhattans, but why are they like this? I, I, again, it's just they've had. This is this is why I could never figure out the Manhattan recipe when I bartended. <laughs> this is exactly why, because there's 75 variations well, and, of it. And literally, when I say it's like an old man drink, I think of like a 70 year old man. He wants mm. it extra sweet, extra cherries, yep. extra cherry juice up, but not too cold. You know, like when people order they're drinks particular. like this. Yes, they're very specific. Yeah. Same with martinis. Mm-hmm. I get it. You want to drink like what, what you, you want. like. Mm-hmm. I get it. And most people are like, oh, well, I meant this, that, or the third, not like, rah, 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 and you screwed up my drink. Because yeah. I, I did have a friend that I bartended with who thought, for a martini, it's 
gin or vodka and dry vermouth. Yeah. She thought extra dry meant extra dry vermouth, which mm. is actually the opposite because extra dry means even less. Right. Yeah. Oh, no. She was like, I always wondered why people were sending my martinis back. And oh. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> That would Sweet be why. I know. She tried. Bless her heart. This is good, though. Mm-hmm. I've never had a Manhattan before, and I did not think I would like it. I think it's the sweet vermouth. It sort yeah. of gives it, like, a depth of flavor. The bitters definitely helps, but you wouldn't think a cup of whiskey would be like, hmm, let I me don't... sip on this. <laughs> Yum. I don't know that I would, like, order this for myself, but if somebody happened to order one for me, like, if we were out someplace, right. or that was, like, the drink of choice, I wouldn't be mad. Right. I've it's had a them, pleasant surprise. I've had them at the cork, and I've had them at the schoolhouse locally, mm. and they've been really good. So well, the schoolhouse is so pretty. It's all about how you mix it up. There. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> that was delicious. Cocktails are fine art, my friends. Some of them, it's just like here's your vodka and your club soda, but a lot of it, it's like like this. It's super yeah. easy, but any way you mix it up, it's gonna be good. It's this just is the fun part, days. like the drink exploring the different drinks. This right. Is like, the fun, not yucky is, part of the learning. podcast. <laughs> we're learning. All right, so let's get into it. Oh, I guess if we have to. <laughs> <laughs> Rodney Alcala committed his first violent crime at the age of 25. He lured an eight-year-old girl into his apartment and proceeded to do terrible things to her. This was the beginning of a very dark path for Rodney. On the outside, he was a handsome and charming man, someone who was described as easy to trust. What most people didn't see was that something much more sadistic lurked under the surface. Like, a lot, a lot. Like, crazy. So, by all accounts, from everything that we found, Rodney's childhood seemed completely normal. Uh, He had two sisters and a brother. Mom and dad were together until Rodney was around 11 years old. He was born in Texas, but his family made the move to Mexico in 1951 when he was around eight. The family was Mexican-American, so this was not like a culture shock to anybody. But Rodney's father did wind up leaving the home only three years later. Once mother and father were separated, Rodney's mother moved the family back to the States. They ended up in L.A., California, which is where Rodney winds up staying until he joined the Army in 1961. So he was only 17, but we mentioned he's charming. Mm -hmm. So somehow he wound up enlisted and serving as a clerk. Three years into his service, however, he experienced something that was described as a nervous breakdown. He went AWOL and hitchhiked his way from Fort Bragg, which, in case you're curious, is in North Carolina, all the way back to his mother's home, which was still in California. (laughs) On the complete opposite side of the country. Literally coast to coast. I think it's super interesting that they marked down like the nerve it was described as a nervous breakdown but wasn't labeled as a nervous they were very specific about it to Mm -hmm. go awol like that that literally is usually it's got to be a a mark of like my brain has broken even if it's just temporarily but to just pick up and be like you know what bye it's very unusual for people who enlist right So he eventually gets seen by a military psychiatrist, and he got diagnosed with the diagnosis of all diagnosis, the (laughs) antisocial personality disorder. When in doubt, go with (laughs) that. This is something also known as sociopathy or psychopathy. So most of us are familiar with what these are, right? This is a person who has no empathy. They ignore the rights and feelings of others. They like to antagonize and manipulate those around them. Sociopaths and psychopaths, they have a pattern of using their charm and wit for personal gain. Hmm. They're impulsive, hostile, and they agitate easily. Check, check, check. Now, not all sociopaths and psychopaths are violent, but they do tend to have a predisposition to aggression and violence. Again, there are plenty of people diagnosed with this that are nonviolent. In fact, it's the norm. Right. Unfortunately, that's just not the type of person that we're talking about today. Sadly, not even a little bit. (laughs) And so, like, you know, for obvious reasons, the Army couldn't keep someone like this around heavy artillery. So they medically discharged Rodney after his diagnosis. So he decided to enroll in the UCLA School of Fine Arts, and he graduated from there in 1968. Turns out he was extremely intelligent. He had an IQ of 135, which if y'all remember, so did Ed Ed Kemper. Kemper. Almost exactly, I think, I'm pretty sure that's the same exact number. 
this is just a recipe for fucking disaster. Because the last thing you want is somebody who is smart and has a, like, impulse to manipulate. And with no empathy for anybody. Right. Thrown into the salad. Like a dash of no empathy just for funsies. What a combo. (laughs) So this brings us to the moment of the first known crime of Rodney's. On September 25th, 1968, Rodney lured an eight-year-old girl named Tally Shapiro into his apartment. Somebody actually witnessed this moment take place and felt really uneasy about the situation. So they decided to report it to the LAPD. And thank fuck they did. Right. Law enforcement was quick to respond, but unfortunately, Rodney had enough time to beat Tally with the steel bar before molesting her. He then fled the scene and was actually able to evade arrest. I watched watched a video, um, like, documentary about it. Like, it's just, like, a mini one, if you will. And the police officer that actually responded to this call was featured on it. And he said that he had to make a choice. Go after Rodney. Or save Tally. Or see, you know, attend to Tally. Yeah. And he, I personally, like, I mean. I think he made the right choice. Like, what what, what choice do you make in that moment, as you know? As horrible as it is. Absolutely. I think I would stay with the eight-year-old girl Absolutely. myself. Absolutely. Yeah. There were other officers, from what I understand, but he was just fast enough to get out. Right. Um, the silver lining here is that Tally was found alive, and she was able to physically recover from the attack. We say physically, and we stress that. Because... Yes. Because she was eight years old who just suffered one of the most traumatic moments. Yes, I can't even imagine. So Rodney ends up back on the East Coast. He is at the NYU Film School, and Mm -hmm. he enrolls under an alias, John Berger. That is spelled B-E-R-G-E-R. That comes important. (laughs) That comes important in a moment. (laughs) Berger with two E's. (laughs) Keep that in mind, everybody. So he actually studied under Robin Polanski for a semester, which, Mm -hmm. ew. Ew, that guy, that guy, that guy. Is he still, he's still hiding out overseas, isn't he? I'm fairly certain that he is. pretty sure. I'm pretty sure he's not going to come back to the States. Again, he was another one that I was like, I could research this further and add Mm. this in, but I was like, I'll just be too angry. I don't want to rip my laptop in half, like Hulk out. I would love to float the idea of like some weird celebrity kind of deep dive episode and i feel like that would be very fitting for that yeah but we got our hands full with rodney right (laughs) so at any rate so i'd like to make a quick little side note something just for us to put a pin in for later while rodney was studying in new york a 23 year old flight attendant named cornelia criley was raped and strangled in her manhattan apartment at the time of discovery which i believe was I think the same summer that he was studying, if I remember correctly. It was not very long after he arrived back on the East Coast. The dates of, like, when she actually had been murdered versus when she was found kind of was murky. Well, and there there will be a lot of cases like that where, like, the actual murder and the discovery take place kind of not far apart, but with enough distance that it's, like, hard to pinpoint. Exactly. And unfortunately, the police had zero leads when it came to this case, and it went cold, and it went on to remain unsolved for a long time so back to rodney during his summer breaks he started working as a counselor at a new hampshire arts camp he basically say used the same alias when applying he thought he was so clever because he called himself john burger but with the u Hmm. weird like as in bob's burgers (laughs) now Earlier that year, Rodney got added to the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives list because of the attack on Tally. As he should have been. Rightfully so. (laughs) (laughs) Two campers happen to be at the post office one day, and they see his picture on this FBI poster. Can I just say that makes me think of Kaiser Sose and the usual suspects? Because that's where where he saw it. Uh, Granted, I think it was a police station, but I'm like, oh, that's the same vibe. Like, I just envision them being like... (gasps) Our camp counselor? Yes, that's kind of what I pictured, too. (laughs) Like, the panic sets in. Luckily, they were able to kind of recognize this, and they were in a position to call law enforcement right away. Thank goodness. So, Rodney was later found, arrested, and extradited back to California. By the time they were able to prosecute Rodney for what he did to Tally, her family had already relocated to Mexico. They were adamant in their refusal for... To not let her testify against him. Which I totally understand. Completely so. Because, like, again, she's a child. Yes. Why would you want to have her relive that, you know? Yeah. 
on the stand with all these strangers and the guy that did it just sitting there staring at her? Well, and I watched a clip of her stating that she didn't remember the attack. Mm -hmm. And so it might not have even mattered. Like, you would have put the child through a trauma of a trial. Do you suppose it was blocking it out because of the trauma? Maybe. I mean, that's kind of, yeah. That's that's where I I would have gone in my brain. That's what I assume happens because that's what generally does in like any kind of traumatic moment so i definitely feel like her brain is trying to protect her right so while this decision is completely understandable it did wind up having legal ramifications since they didn't have their primary witness the prosecutors were only able to charge rodney with child molestation instead of any of the more serious charges like attempted murder which is so fucked like it's just (laughs) so so this up. is what we're talking about, where this guy just gets chances. Because, like, what How? are you talking about? Yeah. He did really heinous things, and he's, in essence, getting away with it. You would think this is a slam dunk, but it wasn't. Not at all. He was convicted and sentenced to serve time in prison. The initial sentence was one year to life. Because what? <laughs> right. Um, however, he was able to be granted parole at any time thanks to a thing called indeterminate sentencing. This is described as a type of sentence that consists of a range of years versus a fixed time. So instead of three to seven years, it's one year to life. So that could mean anything. Mm -hmm. Um, It essentially leaves the release date open and allows a judge some leeway when it comes to sentencing. This is intended to incentivize prisoners to be on good behavior and take advantage of any rehab programs that are offered while they're in prison. In many cases, it's up to a parole board to determine whether a prisoner appeared to have been rehabilitated or not. In Rodney's case, he's back out on the streets after 34 months, and he was out on out on whatever release by 1974. So, in essence, that's like no time. He's what? I just don't over think. two years? That's, yeah, that's absurd. Thumbs down. I don't like it. it. <laughs> Zero out of ten. Would not recommend. It only took. Two months, though, before Rodney would get arrested again. This time he was charged with assaulting a 13-year-old girl known as Julie J. He had offered her a ride to school. She said yes and got in the car. The charges against Rodney made it to trial, where Julie sat on the witness stand and testified against him. Good for her. So brave. He again gets convicted and is sentenced to jail time. And... Yet again, he gets paroled after only serving two years. Ooh. Because why? That's what I'm saying. It's like, honestly, if real life get out of jail free cards existed, this would be him using them up. Bro had (laughs) so many in his pocket. So in 1977, he gets released, and his dumb fuck of a parole officer allowed this man to travel to New York City. At this point, Rodney is a known repeat offender and a flight risk. But sure, let him go visit his relatives. That was his story. I was like, bye. I can't even roll my eyes hard enough. I just feel as though it's not the norm, but like has become a thing with the penal system. They're overwhelmed. I'm sure they were even more overwhelmed back then when they couldn't digitally keep track of people. happening in the 70s also. There were so many. (laughs) Honestly guys, there was a lot of murdering happening and nobody knew anything about anything. Mm -hmm. So, while it doesn't surprise me, it still just really like grinds my gears. It's still really unfortunate because we're, it just feels like nobody, especially because these are little girls we're talking about and nobody's getting their justice. Not at all. So, after just one week after Rodney's arrival in the city, the remains of 23-year-old Ellen Hover are found buried under a pile of rocks on a hillside that overlooked the Hudson River. This was a woman of note. Her father was the owner of a popular Hollywood nightclub called Ciro's. She was actually the goddaughter of Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. Which is crazy. So, you'd think people <laughs> like, would be looking for her, right? Yeah. Right. Um, Unfortunately, this case also goes cold, and just like Cornelia's case, remains unsolved for quite a long time. Shaking my damn head. Seriously. Sometime in late 77, early 78, Rodney manages to land a job at the LA Times. How? I will never understand. Because apparently nobody did a background check. Literally. (laughs) He becomes a typesetter despite having this fucking criminal record. 
Interestingly enough, this was also, like, this happened during the height of the Hillside Strangler murders. So, you know, just another example of all the craziness of the 70s. Especially in California. Like, oh my talk God. about, like, a mixing pot of some crazy ass shit. Seriously. Like, the drugs, the, yeah. the, there were a lot of itinerant people that went to San Francisco for the summer of love and then just stayed there. And just, like, hung out. Yeah, mm-hmm. and lived in the parks and whatnot, so. It's, well, and if you think about it, Hillside Strangler, Rondia, uh, Alcala went and operated in California. Ed Kemper also, like, this is insane. Yep. What was happening? <laughs> so during this time, the LAPD were conducting interviews with every single known sex offender they could get their hands on living locally. And Rodney sure was on the list. For once, he's on the list. Fucking Thanks finally somebody, right? like, paying attention to this dude's <laughs> extracurriculars. Like, what the fuck? He does eventually get ruled out as a suspect. However, the idiot had weed on him. And so he did get arrested, and he had to serve a brief sentence for possession. Well, at least we have that. This fucking guy, <laughs> though, like... So here's the part to me that is the creepiest fucking shit I've ever mm. read in my whole life. Rodney spent a lot of his free time trying to convince young people that he was actually a professional fashion photographer. Mm, I don't he like would, it. <laughs> I'm like... <laughs> trying not to vomit... He would go around asking to take photographs for his quote-unquote portfolio. Um, one of his co-workers allegedly saw some of these photos and claimed that the girls in them were nude and in questionable positions. According to this person, Rodney explained that he was commissioned by the girls' mothers to take the pictures. Yeah, right. My mom, hell to the no, yeah, no. Deirdre would never. She would not. <laughs> So, uh, like everybody else that's listening, we doubt this was the case since a lot of them were sexually explicit in nature and many of the subjects actually still remain unidentified. It's highly unlikely that their moms were like, sure, okay, let me just sign off on this. Okay, we're going to make another crime and spirits rule right now. If a strange man or woman, if a strange human if being a stranger approaches you and says, hey, I would love to add you to my portfolio, run the fuck away. Oh, yeah, don't say no or yes, don't collect $200, just turn and sprint. <laughs> just leave the situation. Stay safe. It no does portfolios. No. not go well. Nope. If you are meant to be a model, you will get there, honey. It's It'll be true. just fine. <laughs> They'll see you at the mall or whatever. Like, exactly. you'll become famous. Don't you worry. So this all brings us to the summer of 1979. 12-year-old Robin Samso disappears somewhere between leaving Huntington Beach and heading to her ballet cat. Excuse me, ballet class. Law enforcement interviews the friends she was at the beach with that day and they recalled a stranger approaching them asking if he could take their picture. Just say no. no. Now, thanks to the details provided during the interviews, police were able to create a sketch, and they got it circulating. However, it was too late for Robin. Um, Twelve days later, her body was found in the L.A. foothills, well into the decomposition process. So that led them to believe she had been taken and murdered almost immediately. Yeah, within the same day. Right around the same time, Rodney's parole officer finally, <laughs> happens to see the police sketch and recognizes the man pictured immediately. Because, oh, of course... He's paying attention to something? He didn't just let him ride off into the sunset. There He's go. like, oh, shit, that's he Rodney. He must be back for visiting his sick aunts. Oh, my God. Hope so, his grandma was doing okay. In a turn of right, the PO <laughs> turns Rodney in, and law enforcement begins investigating this shit further. They conduct a search of his mother's home, and they actually find a rental receipt for a storage locker in Seattle. Because what? Why are we living in L.A. storing shit in Seattle? Right. That <laughs> is suspicious. Don't be suspicious. You're he so is suspicious. So they go check that out. During this search of the storage locker, they actually find earrings that were proven to belong to Robin. Rodney gets arrested in July of 1979 and was held without bail. Finally. Somebody is doing something right. <laughs> the following year, he was tried and convicted for Robin's murder. At the time, he was sentenced to death. But the verdict would later get overturned by the California Supreme Court. And I hate that I, I get why. <laughs> I know. I understand they're right, but, like, 
Why? So the Superior Court made the decision because the murder trial jury was informed of his previous sex crime convictions when they should not have been. So if you guys aren't familiar, from my understanding, when you commit a crime and you are on trial, the judge is going to lay out specific laws and, like, what's allowed and what's not allowed. And I'm going to assume that his defense attorneys did their job mm-hmm. and made sure that that was not admissible. Right. But they heard it anyways. Right. Mm, there you go. Overturned. I just, it boggles my mind when a judge is like, the jury will not listen. The jury will disregard. I'm like, okay. We, how many times did we see that? bleach it from my brain <laughs> in the so. uh Darrell Brooks case yes literally. like how many times did you have to say I, like she should have just had one, like a fan that just had it on it <laughs> the jury will disregard 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 <laughs> she said it more times than I could count I'm sure if somebody would have made a drinking game to that people would have been <laughs> dying of alcohol I'm not, I'm not even gonna lie why didn't we think of it Shit. <laughs> honestly no. we can always rewatch it yeah there you go Let don't worry we'll pass. live tweet it <laughs> so there is a retrial in 1986 everything runs the way it should For cool once. awesome and rodney gets handed a conviction great he gets a sentence to death wonderful however in 2001, the second conviction gets nullified. Why? This is filling me with rage. Why? So this was partially because a witness was not allowed to testify on Rodney's behalf. I couldn't find why. There wasn't really any explanation. They just said that this witness was supposed to have been able to support Rodney's argument that the park ranger who had found Robin's body had been, quote-unquote, hypnotized by police investigators well and and i don't know if that was like a witness in the park or like one of his friends it did it really didn't specify it didn't go into detail so i was like (laughs) my question is did he mean hypnotize as in like literal they hypnotized them i thought (laughs) it meant sort of like the police investigators were like well don't you want to see it our way yeah like and see that he's guilty. You know curious. what I mean? Like that kind of thing. You, you never, never know. Though. You never know. <laughs> Motherfuckers be crazy. Exactly. So it might could be like actual hypnotizing, but I guess we'll never <laughs> Exhibit know. Exhibit A. I know. He right? pulls out a, a hypnotist. <laughs> right? <laughs> that would be hilarious. So during this time in lockup, Rodney did use his time to quote unquote good use. Um, he published a book <laughs> called You the Jury. Where he basically just proclaims his innocence from front to back. He also suggests a new suspect for police to investigate. As far as we know, police did not pursue this in any capacity because he was fucking bananas. Why do people go to jail and then publish books? I know. That's Especially something proclaiming their innocence. I'm like... I never knew that it was such a thing until we started thing. doing this podcast in so like 90%. Really though, <laughs> honestly, people. you're right. So many of them have been like, well, I'm going to publish either weird, gross books or yeah. books saying that I did not do it. Right. So or very clearly you should just take that book. If I did it, this is how I would have done it. Oh. Because <laughs> they have all that free time. What I mean, else are I they guess. supposed to do? Just spinning stories. Just to also prove that Rodney's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, <laughs> he did file two separate lawsuits against the California penal system. I'm not saying they're not true. I'm just saying. It just seems suspicious. They seem frivolous. <laughs> One was for an accident where he slipped and fell, and he didn't feel like he had proper care, and there was not proper care taken with the wet floor, and so on and so forth. <laughs> that just cracks me up so much. The other one's worse, though, I feel, because it's because he said they had refused to serve him a low-fat diet in prison. Because <laughs> I don't... In prison, you're getting all of the food groups. And right. that's literally it. Yeah, you get like it's bare not like you get fun minimum. stuff unless you have money to go buy fun stuff. Like right, and fun stuff. I'm saying fun stuff like ramen noodles. Right, exactly. Yay, a canned Snickers bar. You know what I mean? So I mean, hey, they're under no. They're under. They're literally under no obligation to give you a low fat diet. No, they need. They to have to give you a healthy, balanced diet. Right. But half the people in prison don't eat their healthy, balanced diet. I just so I'm like, feel I don't, like Rodney was just trying to do anything he could like grasping to get out of jail. Because that was, again, like, his way. He's a smart man. So how can I cause problems and confusion? Maybe this will get me out of jail. He was literally... So being diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder is a, 
is it's not really but it's essentially being diagnosed as a psychopath so like the man was just trying to manipulate and he didn't think that he could he didn't care about any long-term consequences he was right. just trying to like well maybe if i try it this way maybe right. if i try it that way like at least yeah. that's how i take him's, it him's a bad man i don't like it. i don't like it So in 2003, Orange County law enforcement begins to prepare for a third trial because we're still trying to get him on the murder for Robin. For fuck's sake. (laughs) So long. This is when they learn about Rodney's DNA hits. So law enforcement collected a sample for Rodney. He did not want to give the sample, but he was compelled to by law. So joke's on him, I guess. So I think like CODIS initially started in California because they started taking DNA from all of their inmates arrested for, I think, either felonies or violent crimes or something like that so that they could upload it into this huge bank with all of your DNA information. And he was just not thrilled to be a part of this, well, but he had he, no choice. Because he knew. Exactly. Right. So what they did is, you know compare it to other rape and murder scenes so they got two hits back initially as they continued their preparations they're able to place rodney at a couple other scenes as well this all led to him receiving four additional murder indictments try and get out of that motherfucker try it (laughs) his attorney did try to argue themselves out of it and i just love this so much because it's so fucking stupid i read it six times and oh I was my god like, no it's so funny to me so his argument as to why they should not add the four additional murder indictments was quote if you're a juror and you hear one murder case you may be able to have reasonable doubt but it's very hard to say you have reasonable doubt on all five especially when four or five aren't alleged by eyewitnesses but are proven by dna matches so End you're quote. saying the evidence is concrete so we should that would make it harder to believe that he didn't do it he basically is like that's gonna make my job really difficult so well, i'm just saying maybe not representing a guilty person is difficult yeah so. <laughs> Especially when there's DNA. DNA is lock, stock, barrel. We well, got you I just there. want to know, is the judges, what did the judge's face look like when he heard that argument? So I'm sure they hear some crazy shit. Yeah, But I would have been like, okay. <laughs> Denied. Like, I could I don't, never be a my little judge. gavel and be like, no. <laughs> just no. No reason. Just no. And judges don't have to tell you why. Right, exactly. just be like, no. So thankfully, the California Supreme Court did ultimately uh, rule in the prosecution's favor. And they moved forward with the additional charges. Thank fucking God. Finally. We're getting somewhere. I know. About (laughs) fucking time. So we're just going to talk a little bit about the four additional victims because their names also deserve to be said. Um, Jill Barcombe was an 18-year-old runaway from Oneida, New York. She was originally thought to have been a victim of the Hillside Strangler. She had been in California for about three weeks when her body was found, quote-unquote, rolled up like a ball on a dirt path. She was found in a knee-to-chest position and was naked from the waist down. She had also been beaten and strangled with a pair of blue slacks. There were also signs of sexual assault as well as three bite marks on her right breast. I don't like it. Bam. Georgia Wickstead was a registered nurse. She was 27 when she was murdered in her Malibu apartment on December 16, 1977. She was found naked on the floor near her bed. She had been sexually assaulted and tortured before being bludgeoned and strangled to death. The weapon used, which was a hammer, was found next to her body. Mm -hmm. So a weapon of opportunity, Mm -hmm. I'm assuming. He didn't bring it with her, with him. We're seeing some, like, similar, like tendencies if you will and we'll go over like his mo a little bit more but like it is interesting that like you said it's a weapon of opportunity right and there these are such different circumstances but also similar in really eerie well, ways well and that that's what gets me is yeah. a lot of these cases are vastly different but then mm-hmm. when you get into like the minutia of it you're like well this is very similar yeah this There's, like, weird. little teeny tiny things that seem to be the same. Creepy. Um, Charlotte Lamb was a legal secretary in her early 30s from Santa Monica, California. Her body was found in the laundry room of an El Segundo apartment complex on June 14, 1978. She was lying face up with her hands behind her back. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled with a shoelace this time. 
The building manager was actually the one who found her. Neither the manager nor any of the other residents actually recognized her, which was weird. So it had to have been like he pulled her in. Yeah. Rather than she was doing her laundry there type of thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because that's just really odd. Like, why would... Why? Why would that... Just just why? (laughs) Exactly. I don't even know how to say it. (laughs) Um, Down the road a little ways, a pair of earrings containing residue that matched her DNA was actually found in Rodney's secret storage locker in Seattle, which additionally tied him to her case. Thank goodness for DNA Seriously. Jill Peronto was a 21 when she was killed in her Burbank apartment on June 14th, 1979. She was a computer program key punch operator. Her nude body was found on the bedroom floor and was propped up by pillows. So I just feel like looking at these ages and like life circumstances and stuff, like this man doesn't really have a type. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's just an opportunity kind of thing to me. Yeah. Because that's a lot, that's a big variance, 21, 27, early 30s, 18, especially, 8, 12. I was going to say, especially when you consider, like, I think it was just, he liked what he saw when he saw it, and yeah. that made and me decided, feel like he decided it to like act that. on it. No, but I understand. You know what I it's mean? It's a crime of, like, I want that right now, so I'm just going to have it. I, and I think it's just the, like, impulsivity that yeah. is just part of being a psychopath, if yeah. you will. Yucky. Um, So at any rate, Rodney doesn't actually stand trial until 2009. Some sources say 2010, but at any rate, he's actually standing trial. Yeah. Um, During this time, he actually acted as his own lawyer. He did take the stand in his own defense. He spent five hours questioning himself. Going, I I was cross. I wanted to watch the footage, but I was like, I don't think I can. He went as far as to address himself as Mr. Alcala in a deep voice <laughs> and then answered his own questions in his normal tone. So, what? I wonder, okay, from what I know of psychopaths, which is admittedly not a lot, um, I just wonder if he was mocking the court proceedings. Like, that's how that read to me. That might could be. You know what I mean? Like people like Ed Ed Kemper was always the smartest guy in the room. That's ludicrous. You're just, Mr. Alcala, what were you doing on this night? I was just like, wait. That's ridiculous. I was like, but of course he did because this is, this man is crazy. That shit. Crazy. (laughs) Um, Throughout his questioning of himself, he told George that he was applying for a job at Knott's Berry Farm, which is a theme park in California. When Robin disappeared, so it obviously could not have been him. That was literally his explanation. That's it. Like, boom. He made zero attempt to dispute any of the four additional murder charges. He claimed that he could not actually recall killing any of the women. So, therefore, I couldn't have done it because I don't remember. I do not recall. (laughs) Your DNA just appeared there, but okay. That's for no reason whatsoever. Cool, cool, cool. Um, as a part of his closing arguments, he actually played, I can't, <laughs> he played the Arlo Guthrie song titled Alice's Restaurant. In case you are not familiar, this song details how the protagonist tells a psychiatrist about his urge to kill. I, what? That to me just seems like a big stamp that's like, I sure did do it. Right. So, okay, just send me to jail. Again, this is like, this gives me that like mocking vibe. Yes. Like, I feel like he's like taunting. I would say like tongue in cheek, like, look mm-hmm. at me and catch me if you can. But then, like, but we, we are going to catch you because we have your DNA. <laughs> right. <so. laughs> and like, it only took the jury two days to deliberate. They convicted him on all five counts of first-degree murder. Fucking yes, they did. Thank God. Before sentencing, there were a couple of witnesses to be seen, and one of which was a major surprise. Fucking Tally Shapiro got the chance to speak out during the penalty phase. Good for her. There was a single witness on behalf of the defense. This was a psychiatrist named Richard Rappaport. Which I just love that last name. It's true. It (laughs) sounds like made up, Richard Rappaport. Yeah, like it should be in a book or something. He claimed that borderline personality disorder was potentially the reason why Rodney couldn't remember anything. However, the prosecution argued that he was nothing more than a, quote, sexual predator who knew what he was doing was wrong and didn't care, end quote. Which also makes sense for psychopaths. Right. Because they don't care. 
And not at all. What they're doing is Not at all. They just want what they want when they want it, as we've discovered. (laughs) I wonder, too, like, if the psychiatrist was there just to try to get the death, uh, like, the death sentence off the table. Oh, I absolutely believe that. Because what else? He was already found guilty. Like, what else could there be to argue? You're right, girl. You're right. Either way, in March of 2010, Rodney Alcala received his third death sentence. So, in all of this, the state of New York initially was like, no, we're not going to go after this guy. We're not going to try and pursue any charges in relation to the crimes that Rodney had committed while studying there. However, in January of 2011, a grand jury in Manhattan indicted Rodney for the murders of Cornelia and Ellen. They were like, on second thought. Well, when you've got some strong evidence, it seems like let's fucking Why don't you make your way back to New York? Um, the following year, they actually extradite Rodney to New York, and he pled not guilty to both counts. Uh, however, in December of 2012, his tune changed, and he just was like, I'll just plead guilty, because <laughs> what I really want to do is return to California so that I can appeal this death sentence bullshit. <laughs> um, he did receive an additional sentence of 25 years to life for the two murder counts in New York State. But I think it was like once California was done with him, New York would get him. So if you wind up com- finishing the death sentence, like... Right. Whatever. It was more of a symbolic thing, in my yeah. opinion, to get justice for the girls, which right. I appreciate. Because, I mean, the state of New York's going to get theirs. It's They do not fuck around. <laughs> I do feel like, I think, and I think you put this in your research, that at the time, the death penalty was not an option in the state of New York. So I do feel like he probably would have gotten a fourth death right. sentence had, oh, for sure. had that been an option. So in 2010, the state of Washington named him as a person of interest regarding the deaths of 13-year-old Antoinette Whitaker and 17-year-old Joyce Gaunt. Additionally, the following year, investigators in San Francisco announced their confidence that Rodney was responsible for the murder of 19-year-old Pamela Jean Lampson. She was never seen again after meeting with a photographer at the Fisherman's Wharf. Mm. Eventually, her body was found near a hiking trail in Marin County. Okay, so having been to San Francisco, you everybody knows the Golden Gate Bridge. Mm-hmm. One side is San Francisco, the other side is Marin County. Oh, okay. That's where George Lucas has his sound studio for Star Wars and okay. all that kind of stuff. There's forests of redwoods. It's a little more wild. The other side of the bridge is more city. So it makes sense that he, if he saw her at Fisherman's Wharf and managed to somehow convince her to be in a car, go right across the Golden Gate Bridge and it's literally hiking trails there. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Because in my brain, I was like, oh my God, I can see this place basically. You know what I mean? Like you can picture what it looks like. Mm -hmm. Oh. Not murder scene, but like big <laughs> No, I get what you're saying. <laughs> Unfortunately, there wasn't sufficient evidence tying Rodney to this crime, so charges were never filed. There wasn't much in the way of evidence in a lot of these cases, but all these other incidents that we've mentioned followed the MO that Rodney had. He was a good-looking guy who was also incredibly intelligent. He had that psychopath charm, so he was able to talk people into all sorts of shit. He would use this to his advantage often. And ickily. Utilizing his fashion photog story to earn women's trust. There was one woman who had actually missed a date with him. And she likely dodged, like, the biggest bullet of her life because of it. She said that, quote, he was so easy to trust. He had a way of talking to people that really put them at ease. That actually makes me feel, like, even more gross. It is also not surprising. Because, like, no shit these women trusted him because he was charming and seemed harmless. You right. You know what I mean? Mm. So Rodney did have some signatures that included beating, biting, molesting, and strangling. He would often choke his victims to the point of unconsciousness, allow them to come to, and start the process over again. We do. I feel like we see that a lot, too. Yeah. Because it's all about the control yeah, aspect like the power. of it. Yeah, the power more than anything else. Mm-hmm. I don't... Ew, I don't like it. He also tended to pose his victims in carefully chosen positions. Obviously, he didn't worry too much about being messy, and he would sometimes leave DNA behind, which ultimately led to his conviction. So, I mean, thank God for that, I guess. I mean, in retrospect, a million years later. (laughs) 
Um, so in March of 2010, police in both California and New York released 120 of the photos that were actually taken by Rodney. These were originally found in July of 1979. Remember that storage locker in Seattle that mm. he had secretly? They found them. Some of the photos found were explicit, probably a lot of them, and perhaps could include other victims. By releasing what they could to the public, the police were hoping that they could get some help in identifying the women and children pictured, because some of them might be okay. Yeah. I hope, dear God. Um, there were almost 1,000 pictures taken, but again, most couldn't be released due to how explicit they were. Uh, in the first few weeks after the initial release, approximately 21 women came forward and identified themselves. There were also at least six families that came forward who believed that they may recognize one of their loved ones in the photos that, quote, dis disappeared years ago and were never found, end quote, which sad. is terrifying. That's sad. Um, for example, just as an example, there was a murder that took place in Wyoming. 28-year-old Christine Ruth Thornton was six months pregnant and disappeared in 1977. In 2013, after the photos were released, a relative of Christine's recognized her as one of the subjects that was captured in one of Rodney's photos. She was officially identified through DNA in 2015. So that poor woman remained without a name for that long. <sighs> Breaks your freaking heart. So sad. Um, so in September of 2016, Rodney Alcala was actually charged with another murder. He admitted to taking her photo because, of course, he did. Right. they had that it. That was very obvious. <laughs> Clearly. But he denied killing her. Uh, the charges weren't brought to trial due to Rodney being much too ill to make any kind of journey. He actually went on to pass in July of 2021 at the age of 77. After his death, Tolly made a statement, quote, The planet is a better place without him, that's for sure. It's a long time coming, but he's got his karma, end quote. Which just good for you, girl. Fuck yes. God bless her soul. Yes. I personally don't think it acted fast enough. Karma was a little slow in this Some, case. Sometimes it does not. But, but she'll get you eventually. <laughs> she she always gets there. <laughs> um, investigator Jeff Sheeman uh, was involved with the cold case in Wyoming. He was actually a bit bolder in his opinion in his statements. He said, quote, he's where he needs to be, and I'm sure that it's in hell, end quote. I <laughs> yes. love that. I want to be yeah. like, high right. five, sir. <laughs> yes. You said what we were all thinking. Thank you. thousand percent. You guys might remember... How we mentioned in the beginning of the episode that this guy was on TV. Yeah. So, in 1978, Rodney was chosen to be a contestant on The Dating Game. Oh, my goodness. I used to watch the show. My grandmother was obsessed with all things game show. You know they have a whole game show network? Yes, I do, because when I used that to thing, watch throwbacks, but it was always the newlywed game. I never got My grandmother was literally, like, the day that that got added to the cable package as an option, she was, was like, like, yes, bring it up, up. <laughs> hey, like... Her preference was the match game and card sharks, but also the dating game. So for those of you who aren't familiar, Sue's briefly kind of mentioned that this show consists of a single lady who would be given a choice of three bachelors whom she could talk with, but she couldn't see. It was so creepy. They had like a weird, just big wall. Yeah. And her <laughs> chair was on one side with the... With a, like a mic and I think of like and cards. And I think the announcer guy mm -hmm. and then the three dudes were on the <laughs> other side. It's kind of awkward. Fucking ew. The whole, this whole studio audience could see everything though. So. Yes. Ew. So each episode would consist of her asking the contestants like silly questions and then at the end she would have to pick one to go on a date with. So, oddly enough, the show apparently didn't run background checks on of Rodney. any sort, on anybody. Well, from what <laughs> I understand, they usually vetted people, but something happened where Rodney slipped through the cracks. So, it's probably, let's guess, clerical error, or he mm. was so charming that they were like, it's fine. That's fine. Just add him on. Now, at the time of his appearance, he had murdered at least four women, but none of which had been linked to him yet. Yes. However, if they would have ran a background check, they likely would have seen his background as a repeated sex offender. But what do I know? I don't work in TV, so... Slash person that went AWOL from the military, slash person with a described mental illness, slash mental break from All reality, like... Literally diagnosed as a sociopath, oh, psychopath, whatever. Any kind of background check, though. It just, again, and this is what I'm talking about. Like, get out of jail free. Not only was he murdering women, 
He fucking he went on television. He was date with a woman? <laughs> Guys. What is this? Whew. So uh, when the host, Jim Lang, introduced Rodney, he actually described him as a, quote, successful photographer who got his start when his father found him in the darkroom at the age of 13, fully developed, end what? quote. Because everything was innuendos. Yep. Between takes, he says, you might find him skydiving or motorcycling, neither of which I think he ever did. At least it's not documented for us. Right. Um, a fellow bachelor on the show described Rodney as, quote, a very strange guy with bizarre opinions, end quote. Uh, the third bachelor from the episode was actually an actor named Jed Mills. He talked to us about ex- his experience on the show with LA Weekly and said that, quote, Rodney was kind of quiet. I remember him because I told my brother about this one guy who was kind of good looking but creepy. He was always looking mm-hmm. down and not making eye contact, end quote. So weird. Thank God somebody saw the signs. Apparently nobody else could, dear Lord. <laughs> the bachelorette of this particular episode was named Cheryl Bradshaw. One of the things she asked the men to do was to describe what kind of meal he'd be. Rodney's answer was, quote, <laughs> I'm called the banana and I look really good. Peel me. No. Ew. So a lot of the questions, especially back then, were like innuendo laden. Always. But, like, I'm pretty sure they were encouraged to give those kinds of answers back, like... You think those were pre-written? I don't know that it was scripted, per se. It might have been, but I definitely think that they... If it wasn't scripted, it was definitely heavily encouraged to, like, stick to the vibe and like theme. Like, be icky. <laughs> Long it was story all short. icky. And in, yes. like, such a weird way, like, you're a banana? Because you have to say it with, like, a smile while you're looking, like, smarmily at the camera. Like, all weird and, like, a weird cadence. He also said at one point throughout an answer to a question that he thought, quote, the best time is at night. That's terrifying. Yeah, knowing what we know. Oh, my God. It's very fucking off-putting. Oh, ew. It's terrible. When it came time for Cheryl to choose... You guys, she picked Rodney as the winner. No. (laughs) Thankfully. Thank fuck. They never went out on the date. She later refused because she found him to be creepy. Well, just imagine. So if you go back and look at the footage, she has like long, wavy hair. And I just, the vibes through the television. I mean, granted, I know a lot more than Cheryl did at the time. But like he smiled and I was like. Oh, oh no <laughs> well and that's the problem too Ooh. and we we've talked about this where like in these kinds of moments it's super easy for us with hindsight to you know to be like oh no that yeah. guy's like a total ickiness but like we also have that knowledge of what he did so it paints people in a completely different light so while they may be like conventionally attractive neither one of us is gonna be attractive like we're not gonna find him attractive no, for because sure. we know what gross shit he ickiness did occurred after his appearance on the show, Rodney went on to kill at least three more women. A Pat Brown, a criminal profiler, she thinks that the rejection he experienced from Cheryl could have exacerbated his impulses. She said, quote, one wonders what that did in his mind. And I find this very interesting. She said, that is something he would not take too well. Psychopaths don't understand their rejection. They think that something is wrong with that girl. Kind of like, she played me, she played hard to get. Like an quote. incel kind of vibe. Yeah, thousand percent. I don't like it. Nope. So, at least Cheryl made it out. Yeah, Ooh. thank God. Um, so Rodney actually called back to his television debut during the Robin Samso murder trial. He showed the jury part of the taping to prove... That the earrings that were found in his possession in his creepy secret Seattle storage (laughs) locker originally belonged to him. So there's no way they could have been Robins if they were in my earlobes. Thank you very much. Um, Jed Mills, you'll remember the actor from being on The Bachelor show, actually had something to say about this. He cited that earrings worn by men was not a thing that was accepted in 1978, or at least, like, not widely accepted. Yeah. And he said, quote, I had never seen a man with an earring in his ear. I would have noticed them on him, end quote. Which is so crazy. Well, and, like, the footage that I watched, like, the little blurb that I watched, I was like, I could barely make out, like, their eyes and their faces. Yeah. Because it was obviously shot in the 70s, so it's kind of blurry and weird like pixelated there's no way 
you'd be able to see that. Well, and I mean, like, it might have been, it might have been clearer then just because it might be harder for us to make something out with, like, the way that we view media now. Like, I don't know how TVs work. I don't know. I'm not even going to go down that rabbit hole anymore. Mm -hmm. I call bullshit. (laughs) Just kidding. There's no way you could see tiny gold earrings in his earlobe. Well, what's crazy to me the most about this case is just how he was able to, like, navigate his life by, like, charming people. And he was just able to manipulate things around him. I think it's, like, super obvious that that's how he succeeded in committing all these really right. terrible, oh, terrible things. Oh, for sure. Because he was just charming enough to stay, like, under the radar. What kind of... Pro- I'm just asking, just out of curiosity's sake, what parole officer would be like, sure, go ahead to the opposite coast with no supervision to visit your family. What is that? It's fine. I don't understand that (laughs) at all. I don't get it in any way, shape, or form. Well, and I feel like back then they didn't have as many protections for child victims, so Mm -hmm. I feel like Tally testifying would have been really traumatizing. At least now they try and, like, pad it a little so it's not Mm -hmm. so awful, but... I think her parents made the right cool, made the right call. For sure. And I mean, and who knows? Like, like I said, she spoke in that documentary, and she said that she didn't remember anything. So I mean, even if she would have put herself through that, just to say I don't know, and then be re-traumatized all again, and then for him nothing. still to get off yeah. with like a lighter sentence. Like, I think her parents made the total right call in that for situation. Sure. And it's just crazy because like he just has no remorse for anything that he does. The whole, like, mocking of the trial at the end of everything was just really gross and disrespectful. I didn't like it. I just, I don't know. The game show thing, though, is what really gets me. It just traumatizes me, sort of, that nobody did a background check and here this man is trying to win somebody's heart. Right. (laughs) When he's actively killing other females. Don't you think that a background check would be the minimum you would do if you're putting, like, strange men in a situation with, like... Yep. What's likely to be like, a vulnerable woman? It's not like your cameras in the 70s were going to follow her on her date. So it's like you were right. basically just like, good luck, Cheryl. Have fun, <laughs> I guess. Hope you two lovebirds have a great night. Yeah, no. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I don't didn't like, like it. it. <laughs> Jinx. <laughs> so this is where we're going to wrap things up today. As always, thank you guys so much for hanging out with us. We appreciate you taking the time to listen. Make sure that you're following the podcast on Instagram and Facebook. It's at Crime and Spirits Pod. On Twitter, you can find us at Crime Spirits Pod. Just no and. If you'd like to follow us personally, you can find us on Instagram. I am at Bree, B-R-E-E, underscore, not the cheese. And I am Suze, not Susan. And guys, if you could pretty, pretty please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review or whatever is available to you on your preferred streaming platform, it would really help us be able to get found more organically. Plus, we would just love to hear from you. That's true. Also, if there is any specific case or topic that you're interested in, you'd like us to cover, just let us know. We've gotten some good feedback on our most recent deep dive, so we're going to look into adding some more of those kind of things to the docket. We've also got some case recommendations that we'll be covering in February of 2023. It feels so good to plan for 2023. I'm I'm so fucking ready for the new year. Like, I'm so done with this last two weeks. I'm good. About to leave (laughs) it behind. So... Please don't hesitate to let us know what you'd like to hear about. Uh, we're mostly an open book as long yeah. as you're constructive about it. Yeah. We always love to hear your feedback. Stay cool, guys. That's right? All I ask. <laughs> and lastly, make sure you're being safe if you're drinking. Get an Uber. Do something. Don't drive home. Don't be silly. We love you. Safety, Safety first, first, my, my guys. Thank you so much. We love you and goodbye. Bye. Bye.